Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wayne Wright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Episode 2 of Chapter 1, An Evening in St. B's, prior to The Transition. Our billet was a whitewashed Georgian farmhouse on a working sheep farm. The house was located at the edge of St. B's, near the railway station, close to shops and pubs. Peter and Colleen were assigned the dairy, a recent conversion into a spacious bed-sitter. I followed the landlady up an ancient zigzag staircase to an attic room under the eaves of the main farmhouse. On the top floor, the farmer's wife put her hand on top of my head and pressed down to guide me into the bedroom. She adopted a similar action to that used by the police when forcing a suspect into a police car. Be careful of the lintel, she said. It's very low. The farmhouse was built 300 years earlier, in a time when farmhands were shorter and stockier than the present generation. On inspection, I had little doubt that the doorframe posed a serious threat to forgetful merry souls returning from a pub sing-song late on a Friday night. The lintel was set just at the right height to break the nose of a tall, absent-minded baritone or split open the forehead of an incautious tenor of medium height. Only choristers shorter than a tall midget could pass unscathed. Also, you must be wary of the shower, the landlady continued apologetically. It's difficult to control. Sometimes it scalds, at other times freezes. It's all in the wrist action. You'll get the hang of it. You just need patience and a dash of luck, she said smiling over her shoulder, leaving me to ponder upon her plumbing. The bathroom sported a magnificent array of porcelain and pipework. Although the sink worked fine, I failed to master the subtleties of the shower. No matter how carefully I adjusted the shower controls, the tangle of pipes coughed up nothing more than the merest dribble of chilly water. There was barely enough water to lather up, and too little for a wildly exhilarating rub-down. I conceded defeat, and made do with a sink flannel bath. Colleen's first priority, on arriving at the day's digs, is to wash soiled clothes. For those travelling light, her rationale made perfect sense. The sooner clothes were washed, the longer they had to dry in readiness for use the following day. Whilst touring Ireland, Colleen had perfected a garroting method that shortened drying time. Hand-wrung washing is flattened onto a towel spread out on the floor. The towel and clothes are tightly rolled, forming a long sausage. One end of the roll towel is anchored underfoot, whilst the other end is twisted to form a coil. When taut, the towel is pulled hard to squeeze out any remaining moisture. Clothes unpacked from the sausage are limp-dry. The process only takes moments, and shortens drying time by hours. Colleen learned from bitter experience that strong fluffy towels are best suited to her method. Be warned, flimsy threadbare towels may tear under the strangulation strain of the garotte drying method. The securing bar of the skylight built into the sloping ceiling above the bed was the ideal clothesline on which to hang my floppy socks. The brisk sea breeze wafting through the open skylight was sure to dry my clothes before morning. After freshening up, we set off to catch our first glimpse of Wainwright's coast-to-coast path. The ebbing tide laid bare a wide expanse of grey sand that was held captive by a legion of barnacle-encrusted wooden groins. 
In early evening, the deserted beach was bathed in a weak, cheerless light that left the damp air chilled and me somewhat melancholic. In such a mood, it's hard to imagine that a few weeks later, the beach at St. Bees would be covered by thousands of sandcastles as part of an annual outdoor arts festival. The centrepiece of the festival was to be a series of sculptures depicting well-known landmarks, such as the Sydney Opera House or the Empire State Building. The models were to be made by a London-based artist from a mixture of sand, sheep droppings, grass and twigs. I wonder if the sculptress would have been so keen on getting up to her elbows in sheep dung if she had known how radioactive her chosen sculptural materials may have been. Mountain sheep on the Isle of Man have to be grazed on lowland fields for some weeks to reduce their radioactive count before they can be approved for human consumption. Officially, Chernobyl was to blame for the irradiated Manx hilltops. Most locals believed Chernobyl was a convenient scapegoat for a series of mishaps that dogged Sellafield throughout its years of operation. The Isle of Man is 40 miles further away from the nuclear plant than St. Bees, with St. Bees being so close to the biggest radioactive dump in the world. It would be little surprise to find sheep shit sculptures glowing at night from their own scintillated power supply. In earlier times, St. Bees was a seat for an altogether more mystical illumination. The Priory Church, established nearly a millennium earlier, remains a place of worship and sanctuary. It was around this centre of religious scholarship that the village grew and prospered. The Priory has been in near-continuous use for about 800 years. It even survived the plundering exploits of Henry VIII, when, in 1538, he set in train a series of events that resulted in the dissolution of the monasteries throughout the country. Henry's exploits weren't motivated so much by a wish to separate the English church from Rome, but to pursue his obsessive hobby of wife-swapping, and to enact an ingenious get-rich-quick scheme by plundering church treasure. The Priory Church is a grim edifice, with a wonderfully weathered Norman arched entrance. The church's ominous appearance in no way captured the sense of peace one might hope for in a house of God. Internally, the building was supported by a series of massive stone columns, that appeared to be leaning outwards from the aisle and backwards from the altar. I was left undecided whether the building was resisting being drawn back into the earth from where it had come, or stretching slowly upwards towards heavenly salvation. Either way, it was a subtle optical illusion to remind the faithful that their behaviour may ultimately send them to the fiery furnace below, or skyward, to a palace of eternal happiness. We soon had our fill of ecclesiastical enlightenment, and our thoughts turned to the more secular topic of food. Following a brief recce of the village, we settled on a pub that appeared to be the most popular. I made a mistake of accepting the advice of a local soap perched on a stool in the corner by the bar. The beer he recommended was a rich dark ale with a spicy nose and a bitter malty flavour. It had good length, but was too sharp and astringent for the uninitiated. Against our better judgment, we forced the ale down. After all, we had just started our trekking and culinary adventure, and were reluctant to shy at the first hurdle. In his native Australia, Peter rarely drinks beer. That's no surprise to me. I find most mass-produced Australian beers are bland, lager-style grogs, with a smell reminiscent of seepage from a chemical works. Both Peter and Colleen seek their earthly reward, 
by helping Australian vintners draw down the vast lake of wine that has flooded the market in recent years. Their selfless commitment to helping others had spilled over into a solid backing for British-brewed real ale. Through dedicated sampling, Peter discovered that the subtle satisfaction that traditionally brewed ales can bestow on the open-minded Aussie. If you're onto a good thing, keep it to yourself, was the sound advice bequeathed to me by my favourite aunt. Adopting her philosophy may be crucial in preserving certain aspects of British cultural purity. Fortunately, most beer-loving Australians live under the misguided conviction that British beer is warm piss. With this in mind, they bypass Britain in favour of Munich, when hell-bent on conductive non-destructive tests on their livers and brain cells. If dinky-dye beer-drinking Aussies from down under discovered the true delight of real ale, it wouldn't only be Kangaroo Valley that was awash with cross-eyed diggers, skull and grog. In no time, the whole British Isles would be rocking to the beat of waltzing Matilda. After hearing of radioactive mountain sheep, Peter and Colleen played safe and opted for a meal of farmed Atlantic salmon. In a general sense, I was on home ground, and could do no other than take the gastronomic lead. I plumbed for Cumberland sausage, the local speciality, and what a disappointment it turned out to be. Not the 18 inches of coil-shaped culinary splendor I'd expected, but a solitary five-inch mystery bag that could have marked the passing of Bengo, the box of pop. Since the early days of the EU, when Brussels condemned the Cox's Orange Pippin to its 1984 Orwellian fate of being classified as a non-apple, things have started to improve. Westminster has backed the Cumberland Butcher's application to the EU to have the Cumberland sausage classified as a designated and protected food alongside the Arbroath Smoky. However, after my experience of being presented with the insidious deposit of a straight turd-like banger as a miserable substitute for the traditional and much-revered Catherine Wheel curled sausage, I find it quite understandable if the application unravelled and was thrown out on the grounds of uninspired linearity. We sampled several more ales before strolling back to the farm with only the moonlight and stars for company. I retired to my loft retreat to ponder upon our coast-to-coast odyssey, which was to commence the following day. Infused with the delve skills that many motorists claim with a few pints under their belt, I successfully navigated the staircase and nimbly manoeuvred what at that time of night may be the most treacherous lintel in the border counties. The bed was pure perfection, a soft cocoon of fresh cotton sheets and feather pillows. My last conscious thought was one of happy bewilderment. In the soft moonlight, I could vaguely make out shadowy shapes wafting back and forth a few feet above my head, and wondered what on earth they could possibly be.